praise you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to stand, Lord, worshiping you today, to lift our voices together in one accord because of what Christ has done in our hearts. I pray, Lord, this morning as we open your scriptures, that you would, Lord, quicken them to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would sweep aside the distractions, the sins of apathy and complacency that we deal with, Lord, and our mere humanity, that they would be swept aside so that we might behold the treasure that is before us today. I thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us without a revelation of yourself, but you have manifest yourself in Christ. You've manifest yourself in your word. And so these are the ties that bind us to your holy will today. And we celebrate, Lord, together with great and exceeding joy that you have both resurrected our hearts and minds to spiritual life and understanding, and that you have given us, Lord, a text to behold and to understand, to seek, Lord, you through. I pray that the Holy Spirit, Lord, would be active in the giving and the receiving of the word today to write upon our hearts the things about you that never change, so that we might change, leaving sins behind and slow and uh, lacking of understanding, Father, and trading instead, Lord, our ignorance and our sin, robes of righteousness and sanctification, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through the means that your Spirit supplies in this service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for His Word preserved for us, living and active and powerful to accomplish its ends that God has ordained for it through the preaching of the Word this morning. My prayer is is that that would take place in my own heart and your heart as you listen to the Word today. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 43. While you're turning to Psalm 43, I'll remind you that last month we covered Psalm 42 in our psalm series. And Psalm 42 and 43 are a perfect match. They were likely at one point bound as one psalm, yet they find their dividing point into two chapters. And so we've taken them as two chapters, and this morning we'll cover five verses from Psalm 43. The title of this morning's message is Dark Providences. Dark Providences. The title is Poetic Language Drawn from the Text Itself as other great men of God have expounded on the truth that sometimes the Lord's providence, His provision, His revelation, and even His promises come in a form that at first seems shrouded in affliction or darkness of some sort. And so the psalmist, likely David in this instance, is acquainted with this principle and shares it with us in poetic form. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Psalm 43. If you're able, stand and let's read these words together. Psalm 43, verse 1. The psalmist writes, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. 
for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I, do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm 42 and 43 are a matching set. The last verse of Psalm 43 should be familiar to us from our sermon last month on Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This chorus or refrain has now been repeated three times in two psalms. We turn back to Psalm 42. Verse 5, again, why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist asks of himself this question, adopting the framework of the position and the objectivity of the Lord's Word and, and the Holy Spirit. He then turns the, the lens of biblical introspection into himself and asks the question, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, he says, Speaking, as it were, in the second person to something he himself needed to hear. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is tying his mental and psychological state to the assurance of the anchor and foundation of his salvation. He says again in 42.11 the same words, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Last month in Psalm 42, I offered you an imagery to understand something about the poetic form here. The psalmist is very candid about the anguish and the uncertain circumstances that he is facing and the deplorable conditions of his own physical surroundings, likely being chased by all manner of enemies and certainly enemies of the soul, He finds himself like a vessel on a sea that is churning with stormy waters, winds, and rain. And so as he bobs along in the sea, as I imagine, he finds three times the rope reassuringly snapping taut on the anchor of his soul. So the refrain repeated in 42.5 and 11 and at the end of 43 reminds us that even when dark providences surround us, that God's promises and His covenant realities of glorious future are sometimes shrouded in the shadow of death as we walk through sometimes long and very difficult, painful valleys. That nevertheless, there is an anchor for our soul. And there will be and is provided for the psalmist assurances that though we are left to some degree to the mercy of our surroundings, We are never ultimately set adrift in the sea of apostasy if we are truly in Christ. We are never ultimately left to our own devices, our own sin nature, if we are indeed in Christ. No matter 
the state of the war in our own soul and in our experience, enemies within and without, we can have the assurance that the author of Psalms 42 and 43 had that at certain points in our questioning, in our discouragement, in our disillusionment, in our weariness, in our state of mind that is greatly discouraged and often despairing, that there is a tie, a rope, a chain that binds us to Christ. And His precious blood shed for us, redeeming and ransoming His own, will be a sure and secure tether to heaven until that final day when He reels us in and there's no bobbing along in the sea of this life and its circumstances anymore. But at that point, we are united in glory and our glorified state with Christ in heaven and indeed in a new heavens and a new earth, worshiping and praising Him as the psalmist longs to do on the hill on the Mount of Zion, never to be shrouded by a cloud of discouragement or by the trials the valley of the shadow of death often brings us in this life. Psalm 42 and 43 carry a message of assurance, confidence, and peace and honesty for us, however, in the meantime. The adjacent location of Psalm 42 and 43 in the Psalter tells us, as does the content, that they are also united by theme. The chorus and refrain that we mentioned, Why are you downcast? O my soul, hope in God, ties the two together. Dark providences are the ominous valleys of death's shadow that serve our Lord's, that is, Jesus Christ's and His Spirit, the glorious and sovereign purposes in the testimony of the salvation and sanctification of His people. There is a message in these psalms that God uses circumstances we would never wish for ourselves or upon others to mysteriously, yet sovereignly and gloriously shape us into His image. Sometimes reminding us that nothing is stronger than our faith. Sometimes using the rod and the staff of correction, direction, and chastisement to shape us into the sons and daughters that He so desires us to be. As Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, just like a good father does not withhold the rod of chastening or the pain of correction from a son whom he loves, so our Father, our Heavenly Father, does not withhold the sometimes dark providences which serve the same effect to spiritually shape, correct, sharpen, and attach us in a more desperate connection and a more established in our own senses and in our own understanding, way to the rock and assurance of our salvation. Oftentimes, it's the dark providences that cause us to abandon idols of self-confidence and security and to leave them behind and to instead set only the cross of Jesus Christ before. In these two chapters, as David is experiencing the heavy weight of trial, He's also experiencing the assurance of his own hope in the covenants of Almighty God. These two chapters are in the Scriptures for us to refer to and to revisit 
when we find ourselves in times and situations analogous to its author. And thus they are a comfort to us when we are in our own valley of the shadow of death. Now with compounding poetic flourish, the author of Psalm 42 continues in Psalm 43 to recount his experience of what we've labeled as holy separation anxiety. Holy separation anxiety. You see, the psalmist was most at home and felt the most sentimentally connected, reassured, and satisfied when he was in the presence of the assembly of the saints. And because circumstances had prevented his congregating like we are today in the fellowship of the assembly, he was experiencing something of a holy separation anxiety, crying out for the blessing of being able to return on his journey to Mount Zion and worship with God's people. And here in Psalm 43, he dips his pen once again into the inkwell to spill onto the pages in poetic glories how he dealt with this situation and what it means to nurture, indeed, Holy Spirit-led affections that cause us to love the assembly of the Beloved more than any other cheap substitute for joy and fulfillment and for hope for the future. In Psalm 43, our author dips his pen in the inkwell of outstanding redemption, that is, elusive redemption, not quite sure because of the circumstances that are denied him, that is, because he can't do something like we do, share in the bread and the cup together in communion, he doesn't have the same connection immediately in his sensory experience to the redemptive means that God has provided. It's been a long time since he was able to go to the altar of the Lord, presumably, and offer a sacrifice. And so he feels a holy separation anxiety from those means that God otherwise ordinarily supplies to let him know that he is in the covenant and his salvation is assured. And he spills onto the page what it feels like to be in a circumstance where he's not as directly connected in his, his emotions to the reality of his redemption as he once was and wishes he could be again. And so he illustrates the dark providences of psychological uncertainty. His mind is frail, yet indeed we find there's something deeper inside. His spirit is strong by God's grace. And never mind the mere feelings of desperate anguish saturating the desolate soul that he's written about in Psalm 42. And again, never mind the unpredictable dangers of circumstantial uncertainty that he's written about in his wanderings in Psalm 42. Now he spills onto the page the greatest, perhaps, of all threatening conditions for the human heart. And that is grappling with the reality of the banishment of legal condemnation. What if? There was no assurance of sins atoned for. There is no greater horror the human mind can possibly imagine than an elusive, unreachable redemption, the assurance of our salvation never within our grasp. The greatest threat to the human heart lies in this kind of banishment, banishment from the favor and graces of Almighty God, from fellowship with Him. 
And so the psalmist cannot bear the thought of being saddled with the sacrifice that his own sin deserves. And he cries out in angst and anguish and zeal, I must get to the altar of God at all costs. And so he cries. This psalmist illustrates a holy separation anxiety from the inkwell of redemptive vindication by emphasizing a few things poetically. He emphasizes the feeling that he is experiencing and the longing inside to return to the graces that God has provided for his own soul's security. He does it through four ways that I want to highlight in this psalm this morning. A dual emphasis. He emphasizes four times a two-part idea to drive home some truths. Secondly, he uses dichotomies, opposites, or contrasting imagery to illustrate his state of soul. Thirdly, there's a direction, there's a trajectory, a journey of incremental assurance that is spoken of in verses 3 and 4. And finally, let's note that these words have all the marks of divine inspiration. And will reach for greater proof in the greater context of God's scriptures. Indeed, in John 1, as we opened in our worship text this morning, verses 1 through 18 emphasize many of the same ideas. Four or five, at least, of these themes are repeated in the Gospels. First of all, let's consider the poetic element of dual emphases. These poetic elements of Hebrew poetry are here exemplified in the psalm. It's a classic picture. It's a classic piece of Hebrew poetry. And the psalmist, in ingenious ways, expertly, deftly, wields imagery and poetic devices to explain and to describe and to display the anxiety of the soul and also cry out for that assurance of redemptive vindication. First of all, consider this emphasis, dual emphases, vindicate and defend. There's a cry, there's a prayer that Psalm 43 opens with, verse 1. Our psalmist says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. You see in our English language, and is a conjunction there, indicating a dual emphasis. As he cries out for God to address his state of soul, he says to do two things, please. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Vindicate and defend. He goes on to say in the same verse that he's asking that he be vindicated and defended against an ungodly people and from the deceitful and unjust man delivered me. There's another dual emphasis. But let's consider first of all these two words, vindicate and defend in Psalm 43.1. If we look in uh, a Hebrew text, which has a little bit more of a literal translation, and then we compare some of the other psalms and uh, passages of the Scripture where the same Hebrew words are used, we find many associations that are attached to these words. And when it comes to the term vindicate, the psalmist means to communicate with that word ideas of legal language. There's an acting as judge implication there. When he says, Lord, vindicate me, he's asking the Almighty God 
the judge of all the universe, to act as judge on his behalf. He's pleading his case before the bar of heaven, as if you will. He's asking that God rule in his favor. He's imploring the judge, the ultimate authority, and this case, as he brings his grievance, the only place he knows he'll ultimately get justice, he pleads for a decisive ruling in his favor. Based on the merits of his case that he freely divulges, he says, decide for me. He says, defend my cause. He implies he is falsely accused. He asks the Lord to enter into judgment on his behalf, that he might be freed from the false accusations that are brought against him, that the testimony that his neighbor has brought, the false witness, would be destroyed through cross-examination. He's asking that a verdict be handed down, that a pronouncement, a judgment, would be executed on his behalf. And what does he have to offer as he makes his case? Well, this brings us to the gospel. When we stand before the Lord, when we take the position that the psalmist does in Psalm 43, asking for him to answer a prayer, really any prayer, help me, O God, deliver me from these unjust circumstances, from this unfortunate event. How in the world can we stand before the Lord who has ultimate justice in his grasp, and perfect knowledge of everything that we've ever done. And to stand there before His omniscience and His immutability, His omnipotence, and say, defend me. There's only one state, there's only one possible state, when we can stand with confidence before the bar of heaven, before the judge of all glory, and ask for a ruling in our favor. And that state is to be clothed in the righteousness of of Christ. O Lord, you have shed your blood to purchase me. I am your child. I ask you to rule in my favor, not for my sake ultimately, but for yours. For your glory, O God, vindicate me, defend my cause. And I submit to you, though this is in an Old Testament context, nevertheless, the state of the soul was essentially the same for a believer in this day and age that we read here and today. That it was through faith in the vindication of the Messiah's imputed righteousness that David could stand in confidence before the Lord and plead his own case and ask to be vindicated, ask to be defended. David, in this dual emphasis, also asks that the Lord would grant to him a defense on his, on his behalf. And here the words associated with the term in our English language defend have to do with an arguing, an active defense, an intercession on our behalf, a contending of our case, a pleading of our case vigorously, a quarreling with the prosecution, if you will, a striving with us on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, takes this role indeed. The Bible declares that He ever lives to make intercession for us. That is, to plead vigorously for our case, 
to strive for us, to contend for us. And consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So you see in the legal language that was employed in this dual emphasis that this prayer has two aspects to it. In theology, we might refer to them as justification and intercession. There's an active and a passive state here, in the, forensically speaking, that is related to courts and law and the situation before the justice of before God's justice. The psalmist asks for two things: that he would be declared just, and secondly, that God would intercede on his behalf. And justification, intercession for us is made possible only through the triune work of the Almighty God. And so we see here encoded in Scripture, long before the book of Hebrews brings it into such bold clarity, these aspects of our standing before the Lord in Christ already on the pages of Holy Scripture. Secondly, under dual emphases, we have the enemy of the soul listed in two terms. That is, the charge that David brings, or the author brings against his enemies, he characterizes it by saying it's coming from a deceitful and unjust source. He first of all says that God, or prays that God would vindicate him in 43.1 and defend his cause and notice against whom? Against an ungodly people from the deceitful and the unjust man deliver me. Deceit and injustice, or the unjust man, are in view here. When we look at these words, we see ideas of dishonesty, false uh, testimony, false witness, as we've mentioned, treacherous behavior, unrighteousness, and wrong, referring to the tactics that are brought against the Lord and His believers. The enemy pulls out all stops and uses all manner of dirty tricks as the accuser of the brethren, to twist and distort the truth in a way that he thinks will be the undoing of the church. But so long as we have an omniscient and omnipotent Savior and intercessor and judge in our Lord, his tactics will always fail. Though for a time we might live under the harsh and unjust declaration and charges of the enemy of our souls. We can be assured in faith that ultimately we are in good standing before the Lord. The enemy of our souls loves to bring back, I'm sure this is your experience as it is mine, the regrets of our past life, dragging out the sins that ought to be, uh, that ought to be confined to the furthest reaches of the east from the west in our own hearts, but often are there in reserve for him to access and parade before us. And thus, with deceitful tactics, he lays before us our old life to cast doubt on our merit and good standing before the Lord. But this is an unjust charge, because in Christ we are righteous, and we are washed clean from the record of debt that stood against us. So those tactics that the enemy uses are shown before the clear 
word and law of God to be deceitful, underhanded, baseless, spurious, and false. They are frivolous charges in a lawsuit that is ultimately thrown out of the court. And then the declaration from the Lord as we stand there and plead the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ is, you are righteous, my son, in the blood of Jesus. The context here of our enemies is a recognition that both individually and collectively there's an expression of anti-covenant that we are forced to deal with until this world is tightly wrapped up and exchanged for the glorious new one. That is, in this intermediary state where we are here, I should say interim state, where we are here living in this life, we will face enemies corporately and individually who will lie about our state, make false accusations, and oppose us on every turn. These are the deceitful and unjust men who stand against us. But more than that, they are an ungodly people. The author of Psalm 43 asks that God would defend him against an ungodly people. In the prior chapter, there's a word I mentioned that's referred to by two words in English in verse 8 of Psalm 42. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Those two words, steadfast love, are a translation of the Hebrew word as said, sometimes referred to by other variations, but that word is powerful. That word refers to the loving kindness of our God. That word refers to the covenant relationship that God in His condescension, in His grace and His mercy, has extended to His elect. But there is an opposite of the people who are shaped and defined by the loving kindness of God, and they are the ungodly people. In the Hebrew, it's actually the literal negation of the ased people, or the loving kindness people. There is the not loving kindness people. There are those who are outside of the covenant of the Lord. They are the unbelievers, the unregenerate, the wicked. And as we see these categories of antithesis all the way back to Genesis They are referred to there as the children of the serpent who oppose the children of Eve or the woman, if you will. The sons of the serpent have set themselves against the godly people. There are two categories thus in this world as we know it right now. There are those who are in Christ and there are those as of yet outside Him. And there is an antithesis There are battle lines drawn between those two forces. Sometimes they take the form in an individual who opposes us, uh, rubs us the wrong way or vice versa. We have uh, a difficult time finding common ground in unity simply because the essence of our being as a regenerate person is so utterly different from someone who does not know Christ. But there is also a collective way that this antithesis, antagonism shows its face, and it often does so in the context of an ungodly people. That term people there is synonymous with nation. In other words, the heart cry of a people who are in a nation, of the people of God, that is, who are in a nation, who does not constitute itself or live in such a way to recognize the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
could well take this verse to heart when we are opposed on every side and everything that we love and hold dear is all but illegal and in some cases it indeed is the brunt of persecution. We can cry out as the persecuted church, as the ostracized few, among a culture who utterly hates the Lord and calls good evil and elevates evil as good, we can say, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodliness in this nation. And from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. These words are not vanity and they are not futile. The Lord hears the prayers and the cries of His saints who diligently and regularly make their appeal before Him. And our God is just. And though His dark providences continue for a time to allow us to suffer sometimes for what appears to us as a drawn-out or protracted period of disillusioning at times, hardship, suffering, and persecution, He will answer that prayer. The disposition of God towards His elect is one of justly declaring us righteous in Christ and then pursuing our case, answering our prayers, and rescuing us with His sure salvation. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that the judgment. And here is the stopgap for all court cases, and here is the day of reckoning for all unjust men and nations. It is at the throne of judgment before the Lord of glory, where every case will be heard, and justice will be dealt perfectly, and everyone will be granted what they deserve. And those who are washed in the blood of Christ will be granted the rewards that His righteousness deserves. And those who have set their face against God's people and have rejected His holy law and His word, who have thrown out the exclusivity of Christ and His salvation as so much ridiculous, frivolous, religious, and reprehensible talk, they will be judged in hell eternal. And thus on that day we are assured that no deceit and injustice will stand. But everything will be dealt with according to God's perfect knowledge and righteousness. There is a dual emphasis both on our standing before the Lord and also an understanding of what we face. There's also a dual emphasis on the means that God uses to draw us closer to Him. And this is referred to in Psalm 43, verse 3. It says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. What does God dispatch and employ? What servants does He use, if you will, or tools are at His disposal to reach into our circumstances, even in this world where we suffer, to draw us closer to Himself, to bring at least our hearts to the assurance of understanding that we are secure in Him, and in due time and in the course of His will with us, our circumstances as well. He does this in two ways, by dual emphasis, by light and by truth. We are told in Psalm 43, 3. This is the enlightenment, the Holy Spirit's awakening of the heart to the reality of His Holy Word. This is the prosperity in spiritual terms 
the wealth of Christ's blood, which is riches beyond compare, and the overflowing abundance of promises that we have secure and our eternal life in Him. This is the guiding light that brings us closer to the hope that we have in Him. This is the light in which we see light that is referred to in other psalms like Psalm 36 verses 8 through 9. This is the faithfulness, the lasting and the correct and the righteous truth of God that abides, never changes, cannot be twisted, never fails, and is never subject to review and revision. This light and this truth are two fixtures of clarity and immutability for the assurance of the believer as we wrestle with confusing circumstances around us. The Word of God is mentioned in Scripture as light. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus Christ Himself, we'll read later, was introduced in the prologue of John's Gospel as the enlightening force, the light that entered into the world, the light in which we see all light, the key to understanding, the revelation of the Almighty God. And His Word, herein inscripturated, is a practical, tangible mooring post for us so that we may not be shaken. Herein we have light. Herein we have truth. Do not let the deceitful and the unjust man shake your confidence in God's preserving power of His inscripturated Word. It is His light and His truth that will never wither, fail, and fade, and will never return to Him void. It is the power of God presented graciously to us, no matter how confusing and difficult our circumstances, to lead us to Him, to bring us to His holy hill, the place of favor, communion, understanding, fellowship, assurance, security, and a place where our spirit can overflow with exceeding expressions of beautiful worship and joy. Finally, my salvation and my God. Poetic elements of Hebrew poetry that emphasize this dual emphasis here is seen at the close of this chapter. My salvation and my God, the author cries. As he preaches to his soul, these reassuring words are refrain again in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He describes this Lord in two ways. My salvation and my God. My salvation and my God. My one true sovereign. He has personally bound himself to the author. The author has personally bound himself to the author of the covenant with him. The association and relationship of the author of Psalm 43 with his God is not one of a mere subjugation and submission, although it is that. It is more. It's not just subjugation. It's salvation. It's not just, I have a Lord to whom I must submit. Although that is true, it is more. This Lord to whom I do submit 
has purchased for me salvation. And in my submission to Him is the fulfillment of His glorious plan for me. And it is salvation. It is a return to His divine order for my life. It is the glorious expectation, promise, vision, and horizon of desirable, overflowing glory of God revealed in us as we experience the effects of our salvation by an ongoing change incrementally in our lives. You've heard the analogy, I'm sure, before. When is a train the freest, a locomotive with its cars? Is it when it can go wherever it wants? Or is it when it's on the tracks? And when we consider the dual reality of God as our God, our Sovereign, our Lord, the one to whom we submit, but not just that, also our salvation, our key to hope and flourishing and overflowing glory, and to reclaim the paradise that was lost and more according to His decree and design. We are like that train now that is set on the tracks. Acceleration, direction, purpose, and design all come together in that imagery then. We surrender our autonomy, but find freedom in our submission to Christ. Thus, in dual emphases, we find that though we go through these periods of dark providences, we can be assured that nevertheless we'll be vindicated and defended. And though there's a deceitfulness and injustice that faces us at every turn, there is a superior light and truth that preaches to our soul a louder message than the antagonist and the accuser of the brethren. And finally, we have this promise in Christ of our salvation as we submit to the Lord and His means for our own joy, worship, and spiritual growth in Him. Secondly, and more briefly, dichotomies. The psalmist, in Hebrew poetic form, is illustrating the holy separation anxiety he feels as he dips his pen in the inkwell of redemptive vindication And he makes these points even clearer and more glorious, dramatically portrayed as he identifies in the language dichotomies, that is, contrast. He calls the Lord his refuge, for instance, in 43.2, he says, For you are the Lord, the God, in whom I take refuge. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Again, reaching back to original languages, the best of my ability, using study helps, We have some ideas there conveyed, a fortress, a stronghold, a fortified position, a place like the cleft of the rock or an impregnable assurance of security and defense against whatever enemy may be without. Indeed, in our person, we might think of armor or protection, a helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, as is pictured in Ephesians chapter 6. This is the Lord, God, to us. He is indeed our refuge and our fortress. Now the psalmist is wrestling. He's wrestling with this idea in his mind of feeling otherwise. He says, in you I take refuge. But then he asks this question, interpreting his circumstances through his sensory experience. He says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? 
Again, he's asking that question, why? Why the dark providences? Why have you seemingly left me to the devices of the deceitful and unjust man? He turns this question, this question of why is redeemed again in this text as it was his last psalm. Presuming the same author in verse 5, he turns the why question from asking about the harshness of his circumstances to why indeed his soul doubts. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. As we mentioned when we were in this passage or area of Scripture last time, the real question isn't, why am I going through this valley of the shadow? The real question is, why has my soul indulged a doubt that God would ever fail me? God is indeed my refuge. He does not ultimately reject or forsake me or leave me to the frightful circumstances that surround on all sides. Instead, God is my helmet, my fortress, my shield, my armor, my protection, my stronghold. Now, there's a dichotomy between what he feels and what he knows to be the case by covenant promise. This dichotomy we've mentioned is partly psychological, but it also is in the imagery of the psalm. In Psalm 42, contrast this idea of refuge and fortress to how the psalmist describes his condition in verse 7 of Psalm 42. He says, Deep calls to deep, and at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So there's a dichotomy in this life. Sometimes it feels like we're drowning. But indeed, even when it feels that way to us, in our short-sighted understanding, using our mere senses to determine our position and unsanctified reasoning to assess our plight, and there, there indeed is a secure refuge even in that moment of sinking and drowning. Think of the story of Jonah. The language is almost identical. He says, the waves have crashed over me. All your billows passed over me. But what happened? In that dark providence, a fish was provided by God's sovereign hand. And Jonah, from the belly of that uh, creature, confessed his assurance and salvation was once again in his God. The Lord provided a refuge in the place of chaos. And second dichotomy, mourning or grieving. Again in verse 2, second half, why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemies. And this morning, imagery carries with it this picture of increasing darkness. A word in English that might well apply is turbidity. Turbid, it means to make murky or dark. You imagine as nightfall approaches and there's ominous clouds that begin to cover the skies. And you've seen it where the storm clouds and thunderheads are so thick that they blot out the sun. And now as darkness encroaches upon the day, we add to this thick cloud cover the shroud of night. And then if we add to it something like this morning's fog, we get a picture of the morning that is described here. A murkiness of circumstances so that our vision is blurred and obscured. And our reality and our ability to perceive it suddenly lends itself to a fearful circumstance. There's this darkness of morning that sometimes accompanies our way. This turbidity of experience, this thick, murky, black darkness. But there is something else. There is a dichotomy that's pictured here. 
Though that is our experience in some ways, note the next verse. Breaking forth in the murkiness of our experience is the light of God. The psalmist says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. And again, the picture of light overcoming darkness becomes this glorious answer. And by dichotomy illustrates, though we deal with both, the light will overcome the darkness. Think about this sending out of your light in terms of what we've been studying recently at the Mount of Transfiguration. The representative manifestation of light throughout Scripture speaks of the glory of God to illumine our experience such that there aren't even shadows anymore. And when the veil of this temporary experience in this life was pulled back just a crack, those three privileged disciples were able to see the transfigured form of Christ emanating with pre-incarnate glory. And this is just a glimpse and a foretaste of what is also prophesied and revelation that one day we will dwell in an experience where the light of God's glory is such that there is no need for a sun because the light that surrounds us illuminates every nook and cranny and corner such that there is no darkness, shadow of turning, no shadow in our experience anymore. The Lord provides us provisional light in this time, and it might feel small and at times even smaller, but it is a portent. It is a foretaste of a light that will be all-consuming in our experience. So stand in faith that that flicker that the Lord has lit in your heart will one day turn into a burning and raging, glorious, unquenchable fire of His power that will never let darkness come near you ever again. Also, there's a contrast, a dichotomy between Mount Mizar and Hermon from the previous psalm and the holy hill. You see, mountains were referred to in Psalm 42, verse 5, as the extremity of banishment, as the distance and the loneliness that is associated with the psalmist's experience and wanderings at this point. Psalm 42, 6, and my God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar, from the highest peak of that northern extremity in Mount Hermon to a lower mountain, from pillar to post, Hermon to Mizar, I've been banished from your presence. So their mountains represent extreme circumstances of loneliness and estrangement. But notice how this picture is turned on its head when its counterpart is delivered to us in glorious revelation. Verse 3 of Psalm 43, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Lead me where? Lead them back, lead, uh, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, and I will go to the altar of God. And this holy hill is that picture, the high place of Mount Zion of God's favor, that geographical symbolic image of where heaven meets earth and the psalmist meets God. And he knows that this is the promise of where he will be led. Out of the mountains of estrangement and wilderness to the mountain of God's favor. Another dichotomy. He says, I am cast down in one point. But then at another, he says, he overflows with exceeding joy or is assured that he will. 
as we read again in the context of Psalm 43 and Verse 5, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? There's a state of despair that he's been wrestling with, but there's also this promise again in verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, or to God, my exceeding joy. Though he's experienced a state of despair and a state of downcastness, if you will, of depression and weariness of soul, he's looking forward to God's promises being made manifest in His experience that will give way to exceeding joy. And finally, there's the language in the Hebrew that's referred to in our language as turmoil. In verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? That's an interesting word. And it carries with it a sense of groaning and disquietude. Have you ever heard in a graphic war film, The Sounds of War. There's an ominous clang and clash of weapons. If it's a period piece from antiquity, sword meeting sword. There's cries and guttural uh, uh, gasps of pain that you hear. And sometimes, especially if you're more sensitive to these things, and you should be, it really churns us inside and, and, and we recoil from that. And this is the idea of the feeling and the sensory experience of what it sounds like uh, to the psalmist or the way he's expressing the circumstances he's going through. It's a groaning. It's a crying out. It's an anguish. It's a guttural, primal rage and disquietude of soul that cannot be expressed in articulate language. But it's even more dramatic in that it's this scream from deep inside. Now, we're all familiar with those, uh, those pictures in, in, our, in our mind's eye and in our ears of what it sounds like to be in utter torment, to some degree at least. But notice there's a dichotomy. There's this crying out and this guttural gasping for life and breath and this screaming from uh, tumult and, and turmoil. But there's also coming a time when David will praise his Lord I should say the author will praise his Lord and he will do so with the liar. In verse 4 he says, Then I will go to the altar of God, my God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the liar. O God, my God. You can't get a bigger contrast than that. The guttural screams of pain giving way to beautiful songs played on the harp of praise and worship to the Lord. Illustrating holy separation anxiety. And dipping in the inkwell of redemptive vindication by these various poetic elements. We've covered dual emphases, dichotomies. Now let's look very briefly at direction. 43 verses 3 through 4. The psalmist says, send out your light and your truth. We can picture in our mind's eye the exodus of the people of God from Egypt to Canaan land as they are led out by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And in a similar way, the psalmist cries for God's light and His truth to lead him out and to lead him toward His promises and reconciliation and redemptive vindication. They have led me, he says, of His light and His truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill. And you see, there is a journey here. Now he's come to a place of ascending. We recall the psalms of ascent later in the Psalter that describe the worship 
that sprung forth spontaneously from the faithful as they gathered and ascended the hill to worship the Lord together. And this is the picture that the psalmist longs for, to be led by the Lord's light and truth like His people in the wilderness to a point of ascendancy approaching the hill of the Lord. But he's getting closer. He's out of the wilderness now. He's ascending the hill and he comes to the dwelling. It says, and to your dwelling at the end of verse 3. That dwelling refers to the place where the tent is pitched or the tabernacle. Now he's arrived at the structure of the architecture that was commissioned. That was the place symbolically of God's residing with man. And there he has arrived. But he's getting closer still. The picture is more specific than that. Where is he going? Not just out of the wilderness, not just to the holy hill, not just to the tabernacle, but he is intent upon striving to the altar of God, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God. And now he's through the tabernacle doors and he is there pleading his case, crying out for God's favor and for redemptive vindication the only place where he knows it can be accomplished at the altar of sacrifice. And this is the way God leads His people still today as He did then. He leads us out of our sin and despair by the message and the preaching of His Word. He brings us closer to the place of understanding. And then at the point of regeneration, He brings us to the altar of God, which is the cross of Calvary. The place where our sins are atoned for. And this is the direction of God's dark providences when He uses the end of our rope circumstances, sorrows and sufferings to bring disillusion to, what the, for, to us for what this life promises and to cause us to remove from ourselves all idolatry and to worship Christ alone and to throw us and to throw ourselves solely and exclusively before the cross of Jesus Christ, the altar of God, and plead, mercy, only mercy, let your precious blood, dear Jesus Christ, wash me clean. Let's close by reading a few verses in John's Gospel. I've mentioned to you that there's dual emphases, there's dichotomies that, are, that is employed, there's a trajectory and a direction of redemptive calling that we see here. But there is also in this chapter all the marks of divine inspiration. And this comes more clearly into view for us when we see these concepts referred to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we read in John 1.1. He, Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 5, 8, He was not the light, but came uh, to bear witness about the light, speaking of John the Baptist. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who is the light? Who is the light of the world? What is the illuminating power that leads us out of the darkness and blindness of our unregenerate state? It is Christ. We read further, verse 14, in the Word, Christ became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father. Full of what? Grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In John's prologue, we see the true light. In the Greek, we see this term. He came, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And literally, once again, that means He spread His tent. He tabernacled with us and now the tabernacle has arrived and it is the light of God and that has said loving kindness mercy and truth that we read about in the old covenant is now taken manifest in personal form in Christ and so he comes full of grace and what else he comes in truth and so in John's prologue we have light we have the holy hill we have the tabernacle We have grace, we have truth in Jesus Christ. This revelation is enough assurance to grant you grace, dear believer, to go through any and all valleys, no matter how long, no matter how protracted, no matter how dark. The dark providences are lit by Jesus Christ, who is the light, who enlightens everyone, and who was and has come into the world, and if you are in Him, has come indeed into your own heart. Henry March writes, in response to these glorious truths and himself waxing poetic, he says, the varied conflicts of the soul afford occasion for the exercise of the graces, and thus through the divine wisdom and goodness are made the means of eventual good. Do you see, it's another way of saying and realizing that God works all things together for good to those who are the called according to His purpose, that in the dark providences, these varied conflicts of the soul, they themselves will actually afford the occasion for the exercise of the graces. Thus, they, through the divine wisdom and goodness and the inscrutable wisdom of our God, are made the means for our eventual good. This is the truth of the Bible. And it was realized by many, not just Henry March, not just the author of Psalms 42 and 43, but it can be realized by us today. And it was realized by another man who wrote hymns. His name was Cooper, William Cooper. He wrote a famous hymn that I was reading today. And he was one who was indeed acquainted with sorrows of the soul. He attempted suicide, I believe, four times. He was at times 
riddled with affliction such that he was declared insane and yet God would return in grace and rescue him from his state of mind. And when God would set his favor upon him and in spite of the frailty of his soul would ransom him from the throes of the accuser of his soul who would torture him in the most intricate and unimaginable ways in his consciousness, he would write beautiful songs like this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. As I continue to read this, know that from the depth of his redeemed soul, we have a testimony of one who wrote things like we read today in Psalm 42 and 43. No matter how dark the providence, thoughts like this can be our lifeline deep. He writes, in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. One night, there's a story that accompanies the writing of this hymn. This man, William Cooper, summoned a driver because the weakness of his soul was in such a state that he thought, surely tonight I will take my own life. He had plans to jump into the river near where he lived. And so he instructed his driver to take him there. This man, not knowing his devices, his plans. That night was foggy, about as foggy as this morning, I imagine. They got lost, the story records. Drove around and around in circles through the twisted, winding roads of London area. And finally, frustrated, not being able to find their bearings, they stopped. And dark providence had led them to William Cooper's own door. He was back where he had started, at his home. And once again at this moment, as the story goes, the encouraging voice of the Holy Spirit cutting through the cacophony that he was dealing with in his mind, reminded him that he was a child of God. And so he sat down to write this song. Just another testimony of the Lord's rescuing power when all seems lost. All is never lost if we are in Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we ask you to do something that mere words cannot. We ask you to do something today that our striving will never achieve. We ask you to do something that no one else save yourself can do for us. To take the immutable truth of yourself revealed in Jesus Christ and the assurance of his holy word and write it upon the inner fabric of our soul so that our mind by increasing measure so that our confession by increasing measure, our faith and confidence by increasing measure, 
testifies to the glorious realities that are revealed to us in your word and in Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that we are not easily shaken and we stay closely tethered to the anchor of our soul. And in closing, I pray this morning, if there are any so lost in this place that they do not know with assurance they have that anchor and tether in the first place, that they might cry out at the altar, that they might follow the cloud, that they might follow the pillar of light to the altar of Jesus Christ on Calvary and cry out, forsaking their sin and all idols, saying, Save me, O Son of David, a wicked, wretched sinner. I place my hope, faith, and future in your shed blood. It is in that precious name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.